Good morning, church. We exist to bring glory to God and joy to the city. How do you think we're going with that? It's a good question to ask ourselves because if this is the chief reason why we gather as the people of God at City Reach, Oakton Baptist Church, then we should in fact be asking, how are we doing with that? How do we even know if we're doing that well? What, what would it look like? Well, if you looked at a sports team and you examined their reason for existing and they said our reason is to win games, you'd be able to very quickly work out if they, in fact, were doing that. So the Chicago Bulls, they're an NBA basketball team, and their reason for existing is this. Uh, the Chicago Bulls organization is a sports entertainment company dedicated to winning NBA championships, growing new basketball fans, and providing superior entertainment value and service. Now, if you went to watch a Chicago Bulls basketball game, you've never been to one before, and you came out and you're going, oh man, those guys, all they're about is just selling merchandise. That's every, there were shops, everything was just about buying stuff. You'd be right and go, well, hang on. Hey, that's not what we're about. That's not what we focused on. And so it is with us. Are we being the church God has called us to be? You know, in this passage in Romans 12, Paul is reminding us that God has worked in salvation and we are to work it out. We are called to adorn the gospel, which means we are to put it on, we're to wear it, and people see it in us. You see, God cannot be just a theological thought up here. He has to take hold of your very life. He has to be personable and person to you. So what does that look like? What does it look like when the gospel has penetrated our hearts and not just our heads? Well, the one way you notice is how people love one another. You know, it's been said uh, that one way to tell if people really love God, you see how they love people. You see, love is, is not a noun. You can't look and go, oh, that's a lovely little bit of love over there, or look at that little bit of love. No, you see love in loving people. Love is a verb. You see it in people. Uh, I'm just going to recap the series. If you're joining us today for the first time, uh, we are in our third part in a series called True Worship. Uh, in community, and we're looking at the book of Romans. We're looking at chapters 12 through to 14. And Paul was writing to Christians who were members of a local church in Rome, and he described their relationship to one another in terms of a body, that they're, they're connected like a body is connected. And the basic idea is that each believer is a living part of Christ's body. I mean, that's a pretty cool thought, that we are part of Christ's body, and each one has a spiritual function to perform. Every believer has a gift or gifts 
that are there to be used for the building up of the body, making it strong, making it more beautiful, and perfecting the other members of the body. Basically, we belong to each other. We minister to each other, and most importantly, we need each other. So Michael, two weeks ago, and Phil Oster last week, they started off the series, and it was really a great start to the series, but just reminding us that we need to take an honest evaluation of our spiritual gifts and how we are using them. Are we being good stewards of the gifts that God has given us? And now in the rest of Romans 12, we're looking at how that's worked out. How do we love one another? Uh, to me, love in terms of a body is probably like the blood that flows through the spiritual body. It's the thing that enables all members to function in a healthy and harmonious way. And so Paul says this, let love be genuine. Right? That's basically a summary of everything he's going to say after this. Right? Love has to be the real thing. Right? It can't be hypocritical. It must be humble. Love is not proud. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. You see, people see through a love that's not genuine. You, you just give them a bit of time, and they'll see it. And there's nothing quite like turning people away from church when they see a fake love. Forget about fake news. Fake love is far worse. And now, it's also true that if you really love, there are things that you will also hate. You know, it sounds weird, but that's one of the strange things. When, when you come to Christ, you find he gives you a love for people and for things that you never thought that you would love, but that you start loving and love being a part of. But you also find yourself starting to hate things, maybe things that you once loved, but now you, you're a bore there. Have you guys found that? Paul then goes on to say, hold fast to what is good. It, it literally means be glued to what is good. Right? Let it stick to you. <clears throat> a temptation you'll have, as every believer has, is that we can let go of what is good, or at least we kind of lose grip on it. And Paul says, don't do that. Just don't do that. Right? Get out the super glue, put it on, and get stuck to it. Stick to it. So the question we ask is, what, what are you glued to? What are you glued to? I don't know if you've ever heard that, that phrase that they use. They, they glued to the screen. Wouldn't it be awesome if people looked at us and they said, wow, those people are glued to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Guys, we're not a religious club. If you're new here, like, we're not that. We're not a society. We're not a charity. We're a family. A family of broken, flawed, imperfect people, but we're a family. And we are to love in the same way that we would a family. Honor one another. 
You know, our, our sinful nature craves honor for ourselves. We crave recognition, right? You see it in the world all the time, right? This desire for honor. People will, will give a large donation so that they can maybe have their name on a building. But before we point the finger and kind of look down at that, we can do the same things too. You know, we can, we can do our good works in such a way that we, we, we kind of hope we'll get some honor for doing it, and, and we secretly kind of love that. You know, we can pray in such a way that we're, we're praying just to impress the people around us, and we're not really talking to God at all. Um, towards the end of last year, it's probably September last year, uh, I, I went away on a pastor's retreat for a few days with Andrew Green from West and Lawson Hannaford from Marion. And um, Roland Foreman, we invited him to come along. And he's an older gentleman who's walked with Jesus for a long time. He's you know, just one of those people you want to be around because they just ooze this wisdom and knowledge. And he was taking us through some of the temptations of leadership. And he's a Kiwi, so they got like weird phrases. And he just, he used this phrase. He said, don't sniff the glory. And we kind of laughed. It became sort of an inside joke for the rest of the days. All of us walked around going, don't sniff the glory. But it's true. Right? We want to give God all the glory because he's good, he's worth it, he's majestic, he's pure, he's holy, and we want to reflect everything back to him. But there's part of us, there's just part of us that goes like, Lord, you can have it all, but could I get a little slice for myself? Just a little slice for me. Paul says, no, 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 no. Live in such a way that that's not what you do. You look, you look to honor others, outdo Outdo one another in showing honor to one another. And what that really means is, is put them first. Acknowledge them first. It's kind of like that conversation you see about two young people in love, right? When they're on the phone and they sort of get to the end of the phone call and then the one says, bye, and I love you. The other one says, well, I love you more. And then, no, I love you more. No, I love you more. Paul says, that should be the way with honor. I put you first. No, no, I want to put you first. In verse 11, Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal, in passion. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. You know, as Christians, we should be known for our enthusiasm, our passion, Right? I don't know if you've ever met someone who's truly passionate about something, like they really love something. They just can't stop talking about it. Uh, you know, like someone you've met who really loves a sports team. Like they, they talk about it all the time. They spend their money on all the merchandise. They go to the games. They're following them. And to be honest, it can be quite annoying being around those type of people, right? And you kind of enjoy it when their team loses. It's kind of like those Crows people. So, oh, <laughs> forgive me, forgive me. All right. Because honestly, that's how we should be about the Lord. Right? Considering all that we have in the Lord, all that we've been given in Christ, we should be filled with zeal and fervor for Him. And there was this ancient city called Laodicea, which is now in modern day Turkey. 
And just to the north of Laodicea was the Heropolis, right? Uh, there's a picture of it. Uh, and it had these healthy, hot springs. You can still go there today. It's called Mapukala now. Uh, and you, people still go and they kind of bathe in these hot springs and it's supposed to be very healthy for them. Uh, and to the south, there was the city Colossae who had these cold springs with this clean, refreshing water. But right in the middle was this city called Lady Osea. And uh, they always had problems trying to get water, so they built these aqueducts to bring the water to Lady Osea. There's sort of the archaeological thing, so, you know, Scripture is true. Uh, and as the water came through Lady Osea, it was not hot anymore, but it was now lukewarm. It's the kind of water that if you drink, it's now sort of tepid, and you just went, it's yuck. Spit it out, and Jesus wrote to this church in Laodicea, knowing that this was a church that had just kind of grown cold. And he says this to them He says, I know your deeds, I know the stuff that you do. And this, by the way, you read it, and the church was doing a lot of things that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish, I wish you were either one or the other. So, Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Kind of about like, I wish I could come up with a great Hebrew word or Greek word. Spit you out of the mouth just means spit you out of the mouth. Kind of like, it makes you sick. You know, Paul says, don't don't be half-hearted about the Lord and his church. Never be lacking in zeal. Like, he's, he's awesome. He's awesome, and he's worth it, right? There should never be such a thing as sort of half in, half out with Jesus. Yeah, we, we're not always going to be uh, sort of at the best times in our lives, but we should always have the zeal for him. Even in our worst moments, we should be looking to him. Hope. We should have hope, even in impossible situations, uh, I was reading over the holidays and, and still reading Genesis. And Genesis is this amazing book of just stories of impossible situations. It's like, how, how could this possibly be? And yet God specializes in impossible situations. It's almost as if the more impossible it is, the more clearly we can see God's hand at work. Are you facing an impossible situation? Well, look to him and hope. Church, are, are we facing an impossible situation? Well, the answer is to have hope. And hope means we have our eyes set on him. Not great human wisdom. No, we hope in him. Patience. As a believer and a follower of Jesus, we will have difficult times. Let me say that again. We will have difficult times. We will face tribulations and trials. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not so keen on trials and tribulations. And to be honest with you, I'd rather that they be over sooner or just not at all. But God does more in us 
through trials than he can do with our trials. And he calls us, no, be patient in them because I'm doing something in them. And pray, pray, of course pray. Stay close to the Lord. Speak to him always. Take everything to him. You know, I read this quote of prayer uh, a couple of weeks ago and it said this, when I pray, sometimes circumstances change. Sometimes circumstances change. But always when I pray, my heart changes. Always when I pray, my heart changes. Have an open home. When you're a follower of Jesus, I got news for you, your home is not yours. The mortgage and rent, maybe, unfortunately, but actually your home isn't yours. Jesus wants the front door and the back door to be open, not just to those that you like best, but to all people. Now, I'm going to jump to verse 15 and and come back a little bit later. But verse 15 says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Uh, As I read that, I, I had this question in my mind. Which one is harder to do? Which one do you find harder to do? Is, is it harder to rejoice with people when they're rejoicing or, or weep with them when they're weeping? Uh, I, I think for me, maybe it's just the way I'm, I'm wired or whatever, but I, I find it easy to, to empathize with people when they're going through something really difficult to come alongside them and, and weep with them. But I, th- I think it's a little bit more difficult to rejoice in the ha's sometimes I find that a little bit harder because sometimes those are things that we want for ourselves, right? When, when someone's got a promotion or they've just bought a new house or they just got engaged, and those things can be hard, but, you know, as, as followers of Jesus, we're called to share our lives with others. We're actually called to rejoice when they're going through something that's wonderful. We're called to share all our life. Not just the happy bits, not just the difficult bits, but all our lives. So we can rejoice and weep with people. Basically, Paul's saying, stick around for one another. Be there for one another. Not just in the good times. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, fair weather friends. When the weather is good, they're around. As soon as the weather gets bad, they're gone. We're not, we're not like that. We're not called to be like that. And now we we move on to something harder, a lot harder, and that is loving your enemies. If you're a believer and a follower of Jesus who seeks to obey God, you're going to have enemies. Proverbs says, beware when everyone speaks well of you. Because if everyone speaks well of, of you, you're probably standing for nothing. You know, you just, uh, you change depending on what group you're in or who you're talking to. And sometimes our enemies are mostly outside of the church and sometimes they can even be inside the church. Jesus had enemies, right? He had enemies, almost wherever he went, he had enemies. Paul the apostle had enemies. He, he writes and he says, you know, the spirit has warned me, wherever I go, trouble awaits. No one really quotes that scripture, (laughs) but it's true. 
He had enemies. Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 10. He said, like, actually, the worst enemies might even be people of your, your own household. Now, let, let me make this clear. Sometimes <laughs> you get believers who, who have enemies because they're not really practicing love and patience, right? Not because of their faithful witness. Uh, you know, there's a difference between sharing in the offense of the cross and standing for what is right and just being an offensive Christian, right? Basically, you can't go around being a jerk and then go, oh, well, you know, I'm bound to have enemies. Uh, it doesn't work that way. So how do we respond when we do have enemies and we are wronged unjustly? Well, this is what Paul says in, in verses 14 to 18. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, I often have, have conversations with people and uh, part of the conversation will go, yeah, I really struggle with, with the parts of Scripture that are difficult to understand. And I always say to them, you know what? I really struggle with the parts of Scripture that are easy to understand because this is dead easy to understand. You don't need any Greek or Hebrew to understand what's been written here. The problem with these few verses is, is not mental, like, we don't have to work and wrestle with it. It's, it's moral, right? It's like, ugh. How can I live like this? You know, there was a, there's a great story I heard. Now, just to be honest, it could be a preacher's story. I don't know if it's actually a true story, but I heard it, and it's good. So I'm going to tell it to you. But it might not be true. Uh, so there's a story of a private who starts in the army, and his first night in the army, he spies his bed and he kneels down to pray. And the sergeant takes his boot off and throws his boots at him and whacks him on the head. And the private looks up and he's a bit dazed and he's bleeding a little bit. And the sergeant says to him, we'll have none of that here. And he goes to sleep. And in the morning, the sergeant wakes up and he looks and his boots have been polished, laced up and put right next to his bed. And he asked himself, what would make a man do that? I have to find out what would make someone do that. And he goes to the private, and the story goes that eventually he became a believer. Great preaching story. I'm not sure it's true. But there is a point there that we are to, to almost heap burning coals on their head by almost embarrassing them by your response. You know, the problem is that, like the story, it's actually really, really hard. And we can build up resentment and bitterness. You know, imagine you are that private. And your first night, you get the boot in your head. And you polish the boots and you put them back. But the second night, you also get a boot in your head. And the third night, you also get a boot in your head. Part of us can go to that place of resentment and bitterness. Uh, I heard at some AA meetings, they put this sign on the door of the meeting that says, there are no justified resentments here. 
So everybody reads that as they go in. There are no justified resentments here. You see, there's no anger you experience, no amount of hate you encounter, no amount of betrayal that can justify a resentment that you carry with you. There's nothing inside of you that anyone has done or said that you think gives you the right to hold on to that resentment and to hold on to that offense. And I'm talking about the hard stuff, right? I'm talking about the fact that someone you trusted stole your money. I'm talking about, you know, someone who spreads lies about you, someone who betrays you, someone who cheats on you. All those things. There's nothing that you can justify in your heart. Well, I deserve to be able to carry that resentment because of what they did to me. Um, when I used to work in Hong Kong in, in the education department, we were quite a big team. And there were two of my colleagues uh, who had a falling out. And they were actually quite good friends beforehand. And he said something one day that really offended her uh, and then when she went to him about it, he made light of it and offended her even more. And she was so offended, so wrong by what he had done that she said this, he is dead to me. Don't know if you've heard that phrase. He's dead to me. And she, she went to HR and she made a big fuss and said, I don't want to even sit near him. I've got to move to another side of the office, and which she did. And she wouldn't even acknowledge him, wouldn't say hi to him, wouldn't greet him. Uh, just like he wasn't there. And it, it was incredibly awkward, actually awkward for everyone. And, you know, and, and this went on for years. And I remember just talking to her one like, okay, when, when are you going to kind of soften a bit? And, you know, she couldn't even quite remember what the offense was about. But she had held so tightly onto it. And the truth is, that kind of thing will always end up harming you far more. You know, no one dies from a snake bite. The snake bite doesn't kill you. You can't get unbitten, but the snake bite doesn't kill you. What does kill you is the poison, the venom that runs through your body. That's the thing that eventually kills you. And we can get bitten, a wrong committed against us, but we can allow the poison, the venom of resentment and bitterness to build up in our bodies and it will kill us. It will kill us. Vengeance, right? There's, there's something in all of us that loves a good vengeance story, a good revenge story. Hollywood knows this, right? That's why they make so many revenge movies. You can actually research top 100 revenge movies of all time, and you will hear names like Payback, Mad Max. Uh, I remember as, as a boy watching one of the James Bond, right? So I think it was GoldenEye. Not 100% sure. I think it was GoldenEye. Has anyone seen GoldenEye? Anyone under 40 probably wouldn't have a clue. But anyway, I can remember as a kid watching GoldenEye, and uh, the, I just, the bad guy was so bad. And you got to the end of the movie, and you got James Bond fighting the bad guy. And you know what? I didn't want the bad guy just to die easily. I don't want like a quick bang dead, he's finished. I wanted him to suffer. You know, I, I, it wasn't just a simple finish. I like, he's got to be squashed and, and electrocuted and, and anything thing that just, and I can remember that sort of final scene 
right where the bad guy, I think he sort of falls into this ditch, the dish, and, and then there's this crane that sort of comes down and squashes it, and I can remember as it hit him going, yes! This vengeance. You know, it's almost a natural reaction when someone hurts you that you go, well, I'm, I'm going to hurt them back. I'm going to make them pay. And if you can hurt them more than they hurt you, well, job well done. You know, and it's not to say that God doesn't care about injustice. He cares so much about injustice. You will never understand the cross completely when you understand that he is a God of righteousness. He looks at all the injustice in the world and it incredibly upsets him and bothers him and he will do something about it. But it's his job, his job. You know, returning evil for evil or good for good is actually the way most people live. But as a follower of Jesus, we mustn't play God. You don't take the place of, of judge and avenger. Now, now, that doesn't mean that we don't call out stuff, that we don't seek to deal with in, injustice, but it does mean that we don't look for vengeance. You know what's even more than that? It's not just like, I mean, that's hard, guys. That's hard, because everything, else, like, yeah, I want a little bit of vengeance. That's hard in itself. But the scripture goes beyond that and says, bless, bless. We must bless. Like, that is a supernatural thing. Who thinks that's an easy thing to do? In November 1987, Gordon Wilson and his daughter Marie, who was age 20, were attending a Remembrance Day service in Iskelin, Ireland. And a bomb had been planted by the IRA and the bomb went off. And Gordon and Marie were standing by one of the walls and the wall collapsed and they were buried under the rubble. And Gordon survived, but Marie, his daughter, she died from her injuries. And later, Gordon spoke to the media. He actually spoke to the media on the same day. This is recorded on the same day that happened. Expressing grief for his daughter but also of the forgiveness for those who took her life. This is what he said. We were both thrown forward, rubble and stones and whatever in and around and over us and under us. I was aware of a pain in my right shoulder. I shouted to Marie, was she all right? And she said, yes. She found my hand and said, is that your hand, Dad? Now remember, we were under six foot of rubble, and I said, are you all right? And she said, yes, but she was shouting in between. Three or four times I asked her, and she always said, yes, she was all right. When I asked her the fifth time, are you all right, Marie? She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were the last words she spoke to me. She still held my hand quite firmly, and I kept shouting, Marie, are you all right? But there wasn't a reply. We were there about five minutes, and finally someone came and pulled me out. And I said, I I'm all right, but my daughter, she she's lying right beside me, and I don't think she's doing too well. And when they finally dug Marie out, she had died. 
Gordon goes on, the hospital was magnificent, truly impressive, and our friends have been great. But I will miss my daughter, and we shall miss her. And then get this, this is what he says, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a pet, and she's dead. She's in heaven, and we will meet again. Don't ask me, please, for a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I don't have an answer, but I know there has to be a plan. It's part of a greater plan, and God is good, and we shall meet again. I have lost my daughter, and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I shall pray for those people tonight and every night. May God forgive them. Guys, that's a supernatural thing to do. As a dad, I don't know if I'd be able to do that. I don't know if I'd be able to do that. You know, verse 18 says this, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Sometimes people are not going to respond to that. Not every IRA bomber responded with, with grace and stop what they're doing. But this is what was later said of Gordon Wilson. They said, Gordon Wilson's act of forgiveness would do more to bring the troubles of Northern Ireland to an end than a thousand acts of revenge. And he became known as the peacemaker of Iskillen. I believe that God did have a plan. He did have a plan. To return good for good is manlike. To return evil for evil is beast-like. To return evil for good is devil-like. But to return good for evil is Christ-like. So church, how, how are we doing? I mean, how, how are we really doing? We exist to bring glory to God and joy to the city. That's what we're about. Great measure of this is, is how are we loving one another? You know, these are wonderful words in Romans 12. They're glorious words. It's God's word. And I think most of us would agree with these words. But this is what it says about God's word in Hebrews. It says, God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It judges the attitudes of our heart. See, God's word is like, is like surgery for the heart. And when you read it, it just seems to cut you open. But it's good because it wants to heal you. They can't just stay words. It can't just be a wonderful poem. These words are really tested when the heat comes, when the crisis hits. How do we react? Do these words come naturally to us? Guys, and I have to be honest, I struggle and I have struggled. In my sinful nature, I, I want to blame. I, I want to hit back. I want to justify myself. I can gossip about others. I can speak behind their back. I can be wise in my own sight. But that doesn't bring glory to God or joy to anyone. 
And I relate with Paul's words in in chapter 7 of Romans where he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I want to live these words, but I find that I fall so far short, so far short. But then Paul goes on to say this, and this is where hope comes. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? Christ has made a way. We couldn't cross it. Now, guys, I know it's church, but you are allowed to be excited about that. That is the good news of the gospel, that Christ has made a way. He's taken wretched, sinful man, and he's provided for us on the cross. He's there, and he took my sin. He paid my debt. He rescued me. You know, that's why we can live this way, because of him. He lived that way. He lived that way, and he gives us, by his grace, he empowers us to do the same. And when we fail, and when we fall, and we don't do that, he gives us grace to repent. To come before him and confess my sin. Where I've fallen short, where I haven't lived according to his word. And you know what? He forgives He forgives. Church, we're going to move into a time of communion. And communion is a time when Christians take bread. And we remember and remind ourselves of the victory that Jesus won on the cross. How he took the hit for me. And I can find freedom there. But now when we take communion, the Bible tells us to examine ourselves. Take a look at ourselves and ask the question, how am I doing? Only you know the depths of your heart. And sometimes we deceive ourselves. And that's why we ask, Lord, examine me. And if we're not doing so great, well, that's why we take communion. Because we confess and we repent and we turn away from that. Church, I believe we we can't pretend everything's fine. God is not fooled. God is not blind. He, He sees everything. But he's also there to forgive and restore. I believe we are fractured as a church, and that hurts. It really hurts. But I know this, that God restores and heals when we come before him. When we confess and we turn to him, we put all our our pride, all our sense of justification, all our sense of entitlement and self-righteousness at his feet. He meets us at the cross, you know, because the cross is level ground. None of us go to the cross thinking, hey, I've got one up on anyone else. There's an extra little step for me. I'm not as bad as anyone else. No. As Phil Oster said last week, nothing in my hands I bring, only to your cross I cling. So, as we take the bread, I want us to do this individually, just between you and the Lord. And if there's anything there that you need to confess and put right, he's there. And it might be that you need to go to someone and put something right with them. But let's take that moment. I need to take that moment. You know, this, this morning as I, I came in early, 
I was preparing and praying and going through this, I, I found myself, I was on my knees, window with blind was down, and I hoped no one else was outside the door. But I was praying, and, and I found myself repenting. And the more I repented, the more the Holy Spirit convicted me of things. So I was there quite a while. You, you almost didn't have a preacher this morning. Your pastor is a great sinner, but he also has a great savior. You know, the one thing I felt when I finally got up was clean. I, I felt peace. And church, to be honest with you, I haven't felt peace for weeks and weeks now. It's like this heavy burden, heaviness. And it's amazing just coming before the Lord. That's what he's there for. He just heals you. He forgives you. He strengthens you. So take your time with the Lord now.